John chapter 4 and uh, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading in just a moment just to set the stage for this message entitled, If You Knew You Would Ask. Some of you are aware, especially some of the students from Bob Jones University that haven't gone back uh, after their Christmas break. About a month ago, with very little notice, I was asked to preach at a foundations conference on the campus of Bob Jones, uh, sponsored by Sermon Audio. SermonAudio.com has been carrying um, our messages here for about 20 years. I mean, we're talking about hundreds, if not about a thousand messages. The general nature of, of that message request was that I would preach on the subject of United Prayer for Revival. And uh, you know me if you've been around any length of time here at the church. That was like saying sick him to a bulldog. So when Stephen Lee called me, I said, well, let me pray about it. I said, uh, the Lord just told me I should, you know. And uh, so, but, but he texted back just a few hours later, and he said, do you happen to know what your text and scripture will be? I mean, I didn't even know I was going to speak until a little bit earlier that day. I did not have a Bible on me, and this hardly ever happens. But I knew immediately the text and the subject. And I said, yes, I believe God wants me to preach, if you knew, you would ask. From John chapter 4, and I said, I believe it's verse 10, and come to find out it was. But I wasn't sure. I said, Stephen Lee, check me out on that verse. And so the message you're going to hear this morning is an outgrowth and an encore of that message to some extent, uh, varied in some details because of the audience. Several of you have asked me to do this. I appreciate that. If after being a preacher of the gospel for 43 years, if I have a life message, what you're about to hear is it. I want this to be the keynote for 2023, and so I hope you'll ask the Lord, even right now, Lord, speak to my heart. I want to make a a point of clarification before I even read the text today. It'd be easy to think, well, Pastor Vradenberg is just on another kick. You know, first of all, five years ago or so, it was discipleship. We really got on board. Everybody needed to be being discipled or discipling or both. And then it was personal evangelism, and we, on Sunday nights, would have the Way of the Master program with the videos and the book and the tracks and icebreakers and all of that. And then the Lord really dealt with our heart about corporate prayer, and so we started changing Sunday night into a corporate prayer meeting. And now we're talking about apologetics defense of the faith. It'd be easy to think, well, Pastor Bradbury's just on another kick, and he's just going to add something more to our plate. Please don't think that. United praying, for the matter we're talking about primarily this morning, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is what makes all of these things effectual. And apart from the outpouring, yes, I don't hesitate to use the word, the descent of the Holy Spirit 
upon our attempts at ministry here, our disciple-making will just become academic. Our evangelism will just be man-centered and mechanical. Our apologetics, our defense of the faith will deteriorate into just the art of a clever debate. What I'm talking about this morning is not something more. It's the energy for everything God wants us to do. Even as Paul gave the, in Ephesians chapter 6, gave the Christian armor there. Wonderful, wonderful truth. David outlined it piece by piece. Everything illustrating the gospel there. And then he said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And when I'm talking primarily about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, please understand me. There's so much misunderstanding. I run a very high risk of being misunderstood this morning. But I'm not just talking about the mere help of the Holy Spirit in what we do. I think most of us would acknowledge that. I'm not talking about just growth and holiness and being more and more controlled by the Holy Spirit. That has become the sum toto of the power of the Holy Spirit in the mind and understanding of many fundamentalists and evangelicals. I'm talking about what the old timers meant before about a century and a half ago. I'm talking about God's coming down and visiting us with a spiritual awakening such as we have had at crucial times in the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. I'm afraid that in many, many churches like Friendship, we have so many programs that are running smoothly for the most part that we've just about programmed out the Spirit of God. I think sometimes he must feel like people that are out on the recess playground. And there's two kids, you know, and they're twirling a rope, one on each end. And there's another kid doing like this, trying to get in. I think the Spirit of God in many of our churches is trying to get in. But we're doing just fine without Him. Or we think we are. It's time for us to come together as never before and beseech God unceasingly for a gracious outpouring of His Spirit. I know I haven't got to the text yet. I hadn't forgotten that. I want to touch on two vital principles of prayer that you may have overlooked. I don't, I'm not trying to overrate this message. I'm just trying to give you the potential of the truth here. If we get a hold of this today, it has the potential to revolutionize our prayer lives if we're mastered by these two principles I'm talking about, they're tucked away in the story of Christ's masterful dealing with a fallen woman of Samaria. And many of you studied the book of Ladies and Men by Chris Anderson last year. The God Who Satisfies, a wonderful, wonderful Bible study. I hope we haven't forgotten those principles. With that in mind, let's read these verses. Verse 1, John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. 
Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was high noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Very strange request, view of the culture and the circumstances. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a, a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, to say nothing the fact that a man wouldn't, in that culture, have asked it of a woman. Please notice the answer. Jesus answered and said unto her, verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus said, if you only knew, you would ask. I know that he's talking in the immediate reference here. He's inviting this Samaritan woman who's at this point still unsaved. He's inviting her to partake of the water of life that he had, that he was. He's leading her to ask for it so that she could have that artesian well on the inside springing up into everlasting life. But I believe you'll agree with me by the end of the message, if you don't already, that our Lord in verse 10 touches on twin principles for believers too, principles of prayer born out of the Scriptures. What are those two principles? Here they are. Number one, God's best gifts must be asked for. Number two, if we had fuller knowledge, if we were more aware, if we were more informed by the Word of God, we would pray more. God's best gifts must be asked for. And if we had fuller knowledge, we would ask more. We would pray for more. I mentioned in my prayer how averse God's children are to prayer and how strange that must seem to God. The average believer, we're told, and I have no reason to doubt this, the average professing Christian prays less than five minutes a day. Now, by sake by way of comparison, if we only breathe for 300 minutes out of the 43,200 minutes that are in a day, and that's the same ratio, if you only breathe for 300 minutes out of the 43,200 minutes that are in a day, you would suffocate. Someone has well said, prayer is the believer's, the Christian's native breath. But I'm afraid many, if not most of us, are breathing our own polluted recycled exhalings rather than the fresh wind from heaven. And sadly, as a result of that, the church is suffocating. If we knew more, if we were more informed from the Word of God, if we believed what we read, would we not ask for more of what God waits to give us? Do we not insult our great God by the meagerness of our asking? We read verses like Psalm 81, verse 10, where God, as it were, extends His calling card, His business card, His credentials, and it says, I am the Lord God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. What a mighty thing that was. And He says, open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. He waits to be gracious unto us. We are not dealing with a stingy or reluctant God. He is far more disposed to give to us what we need in a greater way than we could conceive of than we are willing to ask. Where is it 
that we as God's people are perishing for lack of knowledge as we read in the book of Hosea. Could I list four areas today? I pray you'll remember this. Of course, they'll be on the outline. Four areas in which if we knew more, we would ask more. And we would ask more fervently. We would ask more believingly. We would ask more importunately. We would ask more unitedly. The first area is this, the weakness of the flesh. If we understood how weak our flesh is, even as believers, we would depend upon the Lord more. We would acknowledge that. We would pray more. I'll remind you of what Jesus said to the sleeping disciples in Gethsemane. If you could turn in Mark chapter 14, Mark's gospel chapter 14, verse 37 and 38. Mark chapter 14, verse 37 and 38, when Jesus came and came back and saw the inner circle who had gone further with him than the other nine disciples into the garden. He cometh and findeth them sleeping, and he said unto Peter, and Peter was the leader, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch with me one hour? Verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is readier, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had just told them in verse 34 why I had come into the garden. He said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. How he needed their sympathy, how he needed their help, but they were sleeping. The weakness of our flesh is exposed by temptation, beloved. Let's not be too hard on these disciples. They've been through a lot in the last 24 hours with Jesus. It was a shock to them when he said, one of you shall betray me. And then we told them he was going to leave them and go to heaven. Boy, that just finished it off. Even though he told them about the Holy Spirit and how he wouldn't leave them orphans. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so they couldn't understand it. They were in shock. They were in grief. They were emotionally exhausted. And just as a virus or an infection finds the weakest part of our body and attacks it so Satan knows where and when we are weak and he unleashes a barrage of attack there. It was that way with these disciples. Do you think it's changed with us? Oh no, it's the same way with us. Our weakness is exposed by temptation. Furthermore, it's exacerbated by ignorance. Why do we not watch more? Why do we not watch more if prayer is so important? Why do we not watch with Jesus over the affairs of His kingdom? I'll tell you why. You can put it simply down to this score. We do not sense our danger and our need. We do not sense our danger and our need. The powers of darkness were there under the shade of those gnarled olive trees in Gethsemane. Jesus sweat great drops of blood like no man has ever done. Except in rare circumstances, hematidrosis has, has been documented. He sensed the urgency. He sensed the attack of the devil. The others didn't. Please forgive me for sharing again something I've shared several times. I, I'm, I haven't got dementia yet. I don't think so. But our younger son, Chase, spent 15 months in the army in Mosul, Iraq, in the Gulf War. He saw some awful stuff that he says very little about, and I don't ask him about it. But he did answer me once when I asked him how long he'd stayed up at one time 
without any sleep. He said, Dad, it was 72 hours. I was astounded. I said, how in the world could you do that? He said, Dad, you don't understand. I had to. If we went to sleep for even an hour, little children would be used to plant IEDs that would kill us. None of us could afford to doze. Beloved, if we knew the danger of our own sinful flesh, we would stay awake and pray more. We would realize that temptation is like fire. And our nature is like tinder, dry tinder. We are susceptible to it. Wise, therefore, is the man who prays daily as Jesus instructed, lead us not into temptation. I urge you, don't leave your home without praying that prayer sincerely. Don't leave your room. That prayer in itself is a weapon against the devil and against sin and temptation. If we understood the weakness of our flesh, we'd consciously depend upon the Lord, we'd pray more. Secondly, if we understood the worldliness of the church, we would pray more. We're not sufficiently aware aware of how much the world has crept into the church. I'm talking about Friendship Baptist Church. I'm not talking about church down the road that doesn't even believe the gospel. Because if we understood the inroads of temptation and sin and worldliness in our church, we would cry out in holy desperation and brokenness with the prophets of old, O God, we and our fathers, we and our children have sinned. You've heard it said before, but this is such an apt illustration. When a boat is in the water, that's a very natural thing. But when water gets in the boat, you better get alarmed. Jesus has left us here in this wicked world to have an impact upon the world, to snatch as many precious brands from the burning as we can to see people saved. We're in the world for a purpose, but when the world gets in us, we better get alarmed. How sad it is that the church, even the evangelical church in America, has become in many instances a theater of entertainment, a stadium of sport, a parlor of social life, rather than a powerhouse for righteousness. When you look at so many churches, you don't see much difference between the church and the world. We have the same values. We have the same philosophy. We cave to the same pressures from the media. We adopt the same fashions. We have the same amusements. There's almost no difference. I'm reminded of the Sunday school teacher who challenged her young pupils to take time on Sunday afternoon to write a letter to God and to bring it back the following Sunday to read. One little boy took her up on it, and when she asked him to read his letter the next Sunday, it went like this, Dear God, we had a good time at church today. Wish you could have been there. And I'm afraid in many cases, Ichabod has been written over the door. God isn't there. His spirit is not welcome there. The spirit of worldliness is so rife. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're like Samson asleep in the lap of Delilah. 
we're totally bereft of the power and presence of God until, are you listening, some spiritual emergency arises and then we think God is with us and we find out He's not. And our breath is strange. The worldliness of the church provokes a holy God. Oh, how America needs our prayers, but the church seems so powerless. Do you remember how angry Jesus got when he went into the temple on two occasions, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end? And he found vendors there that were changing money. He had to have the right temple money, currency, to buy animals for sacrifice. So that was a big business. The high priest was involved. He was corrupt. Jesus walks into the temple on two occasions. He finds these vendors changing money into temple currency and selling turtle doves for sacrifices. And Jesus turns into a one-man wrecking crew, overturns the tables of the money changers. You never heard such squawking and buying in all your life as took place then. And he says, as it's recorded in Luke 19, 46, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. That's what he said about his father's house, the temple. What would he say about our churches today? With all the worldliness, commercialism, comedy, carnality, social gospel and entertainment that transpires under so many, with so many under the cloak of worship. Oh, may God help us. The worldliness of the church provokes a holy God. The worldliness of the church emboldens a righteous people. I would ask you to turn once again to that passage we read from at the beginning of the service. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. I won't read the verses again. I'll just give the details very briefly. Jesus tells this parable. We covered this parable in our series of messages on the parables of Jesus not all that long ago. Talks about a widow who goes to a judge who's unjust, unscrupulous, but she pesters him. She says, avenge me of my adversary. At first, he just ignores her. He thinks she'll go away, but she doesn't go away. She, she pesters the daylights out of him. So finally, he's smart enough to realize I'm going to have to do something or she'll bug me to death. So he agrees to avenge her of her adversary. And Jesus says, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night? God's not unjust like that judge. God hearkens to the prayers of His children, but He will bear along with them before He arises to do so, just like that unjust judge. What is the best way to understand that parable? It's inspired. It's profitable. We can't afford to ignore it. What's the best way to understand it? Let me give you what I believe is the best way. The widow represents the church, apparently helpless and at the mercy of her enemies. The adversary is the world under Satan, who is, he's the God of this world, who plagues us and opposes us. Deliverance is revival. Deliverance is when we corporately cry day and night unto him to avenge us of our adversary. I said corporately, I said that intentionally. It need not be many, but it needs to be more than one. God would have spared Sodom for the sake of ten righteous people. He couldn't even find ten righteous in the whole city. He would have spared it for the prayers, the intercessions of one righteous man, Abraham. 
The Bible says in James 5, verse 17, the effectual fervent prayer of a one righteous man availeth much. But how much more when a praying band lays hold of God and will not let him go until he bless us like Jacob wrestling with the angel of old. So let me ask a very bold and heart-searching question. Are we willing to see the church purged? Are we willing to see what used to be called a backdoor revival so that the Holy Spirit will no more be grieved and quenched? So that Jesus will no longer be wounded in the house of his friends, as it were? Or are we determined that the show has to go on? You know, as long as the budget is met and there's a decent number that shows up on Sunday, that's the health of the church. No, it's not. The show doesn't have to go on. In fact, the show needs to stop if the Holy Spirit's not there. What do we do when we see friendship in any part of it under the power of the world? Shall we not do what this widow did with the unjust judge crying to God day and night, though he bear long with us? Our faith may be tried to the utmost. We may be misrepresented. We may be misunderstood. But we have His promise that He will avenge us speedily. I ask you this morning, will we give ourselves to that? Or what are we going to do? Ever since missionary widow Laverne Waugh was with us this past August, I can't get out of her mind what she said. I mean, we're talking about amazingly strong, resilient, spiritual woman. I admire her greatly. In her 70s now, she's a modern-day Mary Slessor or Gladys Aylward. Her husband, Stuart, has been dead for almost two years, used of God to start more than 20 churches, and she still looks after the needs of those national pastors because of the sad state of the economy in Zimbabwe, 95% unemployment, inflation high. But she made this statement. It just knocked my socks off. She said, I'll tell you how the national pastors, when they gather to pray, how they're praying for you at friendship. That got my attention. She said, this is the way they're praying for you. They're saying, Lord, help our American brothers and sisters. They're so distracted. And we are. Would to God we could say, What Jesus said to Mary, this one thing is needful, and you've chosen that good part. Would to God we could say with the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, this one thing I do. We're so distracted instead of focusing on our God. If we understood the worldliness of the church, how much we've just deluded ourselves and been infiltrated and weakened by the world. We'd beg God to avenge the church of our adversary. Number three, if we understood more of the warfare in the heavenlies, we would pray more. That's something we seldom think about. But there is a constant battle raging for the souls of men in the heavenlies. And I ask you this morning, do you really believe that prayer is what tips the balance of power in the unseen spirit realm? It is largely unseen. Brother Eddie preached, I think it was last year, 
for several Wednesday nights, he talked about the prophet Elisha who was with his servant in Dothan. He's not talking about Dothan, Alabama. That's the birthplace of the late Bob Jones Sr. He's talking about Dothan in Israel, in the southern part of Israel, where Elisha was with his servant. And Elisha saw the city surrounded by horses, chariots, and a host of soldiers sent to besiege it and to capture Elisha and bring him back to the king of Syria. You say, why was he so dangerous? Why was this king of Syria intent on capturing Elisha? He didn't have any arms. He didn't have any men under him. Well, you don't understand. Somebody, the king of, uh, uh, of Syria thought, was snitching on him. Somebody in his inner circle was saying, was taking what he said as far as battle strategy and communicating it to Elisha because Elisha would contact the king of Israel and the king of Israel would be ready to combat the, the strategy of the king of Syria. He said, somebody's snitching. Somebody's squealing. Who is it? And one man finally spoke up and said, nobody's snitching, king. Elisha, the prophet, hears what you say in your bedchamber, and he warns the king of Israel. And so he sends his, these forces to capture Elisha, the man of God. And the servant is petrified. And he says to his master, Elisha, alas, my master, how shall we do or what shall we do? And it's amazing how Elisha responds to his servant, who's unnamed here. It wasn't Gehazi. It was somebody else who had replaced Gehazi. He says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And he said, Lord, open the eyes of this young man. And God opened that servant's eyes, and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. God's unseen forces were sent to defend his prophet. I want you to know Satan has his unseen demons too. Let's never forget, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I hope you jot that reference down, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we wrestle not against principalities and powers, or, but, but, we, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness literally in the heavenlies. So let me remind you this morning, in this politically charged atmosphere in which we live, our battle is not with man. Our battle is not with the liberals in Washington, D.C. It is not with the ACLU or the status or of the abortion crowd or even radical Islam. Our battle is with spiritual forces, cosmic powers in the heavenlies. Therefore, the weapons of our warfare must not be fleshly, but be mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And if the eyes of our understanding were truly open like the eyes of Elisha's, physical eyes of Elisha's servant, we would pray more. We would trust God for more. The warfare in the heavenlies calls for prayer and fasting to enable spiritual break breakthroughs. We're good Baptists. We don't like to talk about fasting. We want to have food when we come together. We meet, eat, and retreat. But the Bible talks a lot about fasting. The prophet Daniel fasted for three weeks. 
while an angel dispatched to him was withstood, was detained by the prince of Persia who pictures Satan, according to Daniel chapter 10. God honored that act of faith and sacrifice, and finally an angel arrived to give the prophet Daniel those great messianic prophecies in the last three chapters of the book. But there was spiritual resistance in the heavenlies. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Mark chapter 9. Let me give you the setting while you're turning there. Jesus has been up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. They've experienced glorious things. They've seen Jesus transfigured before them. His deity shown through His humanity. Peter is beside himself with ecstasy and fear. But the nine disciples that didn't go up to the mountain were at the bottom of the mountain. And while Jesus was up in the mountain with his three inner circle disciples, there's a man who brings his epileptic, demon-possessed son, and he asks the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain, why could you not cast him out, or can you not cast him out? And they were unable to. This man reasonably expected that they could because on other occasions they had. Jesus had sent them out on short-term preaching missions, and they cast out devils. And you can't say it wasn't God's will because when Jesus came down from the mountain, He did cast the demon out of that boy. It was a reasonable question. Why could we not cast Him out? So they asked Jesus that question when He came down, and Jesus said, because of your unbelief. And then he went on to say, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Why is the church so impotent in the face of unprecedented obstacles and attacks? And yes, gaslighting from the culture. Why is the church so impotent in the face of compromise in doctrine and church order? Why is the church so impotent in the face of false brethren from frontal assaults of Satan himself? Jesus said it for us for all time in one word, unbelief. What is the cure for unbelief? Prayer, fasting. If that's changed, please tell me where the Bible says so. Shall we not get back to it? Do you fault the soldier who takes only what he needs to go out to the battle? He strips down. He doesn't want any encumbering weight. Do we really believe that the God who accepted the fasting and the sacrifice of His Son will likewise reward with spiritual power the soul that is ready to give up all for Christ and His kingdom? Do we really believe that? Because if we did, we'd pray more. And to intensify our praying and get our focus on praying, we would fast. But I've got one more. If we understood more about the witness of the Holy Spirit, the divine attestation of the Spirit, and I'll explain that, we would pray more. Just like the apostles did in the upper room before Pentecost. Now, I remind you that God is who He is through His Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the best and chief of God's gifts. I've shared it before, but I'll remind you again. There are two verses in the Gospels that are almost exactly verbatim the same. There's only one change, and it's significant. 
Those verses are Matthew 7, verse 11, and Luke eleven thirteen. This is how they read. Jesus said to his disciples, not to the unsaved crowd, to his disciples. He said, if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give? And Matthew says, good things. But Luke says, the Holy Spirit. To them that ask him. I don't think anybody here today would dispute the fact that the Holy Spirit is an advantage, is a necessity. Oh, how dependent we are upon Him. Until the Holy Spirit was given, no man ever prayed in Jesus' name. Jesus Himself was anointed with the Holy Spirit at His baptism. He received the Spirit without measure. Before that time, He did not preach a single sermon. He did not perform a single miracle. He did not save one soul. Until He was anointed with the Spirit of God. The witness of the Spirit corroborates the believer's witness. Please turn to John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Wonderful verses. I hope you'll mark them in your Bible. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter, the Paraclete it is in the Greek, whom I will send unto you from the Father, the one called alongside to help, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, Jesus said, He shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Ye also, did you catch that? Don't miss that. Ye also. We need the co-witness of the Holy Spirit in all that we do, especially in our witness for Christ. He is the witness. Only the Holy Spirit witnessed the incarnation of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Oh yes, many saw the baby Jesus, but only the Holy Spirit witnessed His conception, even as the, as the angel told Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. The Spirit alone witnessed the inner dynamics of the miracles of Jesus, how virtue went out from Him to heal and to restore and to quicken. When it came time for Jesus to die and go to Golgotha, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it was through the eternal Spirit that He offered Himself without spot to God when He bled and died on the cross. Three days later, Paul said to the Romans, He was raised by the Spirit of holiness. Yes, multitudes, over 500 at one time, saw the risen Christ, but only the Holy Spirit saw the rising of Christ. Therefore, He is the witness. I don't know about you, but I must have the blessed corroboration of the Spirit of God whenever I go out and try to win people to Jesus Christ and try to preach the gospel. I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit to say, Amen, in the deep recesses of the heart when I speak the truth. The letter killeth, the Spirit giveth life. And when I want to obey the Lord, to, to, to tell people how to be saved and to give the gospel, I need somebody to bear witness to the power of the blood of Jesus to pardon and to cleanse. I've seen it again and again. saw it yesterday. As Thomas and I went out. We prayed before we got out of the car. We said, Lord, help us to be able to share the gospel with somebody. It looked like for a while that God wasn't going to answer our prayer. It was almost time for, us, for me to quit. I had to go back and finish my message. We talked to a man. We got him up from his nap. Oh, I hate to do that. I mean, he was 
dopey, sluggish. I thought, this is not going to go anywhere. I was ready to apologize, give him a tract, and get out of there. But the more we talked, the more his heart resonated to the truth. God had been dealing with him. He was trying to lead his family right. He said, I know I need a church. We had to finally break it off. He wanted to talk forever. Beloved, it's real. The divine attestation of the Spirit of God. He is unleashed in his power and gifts through prayer. We've read Luke eleven thirteen. compared it to Matthew 7, 11. Don't be afraid of that verse. Yes, if you are a child of God, you are permanently indwelt by His Spirit. Because we read in Romans 8, verse 9, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. But please hear me what I'm about to say and give me an audience before you just turn me off or throw a bat at me. If I'm wrong, please tell me. I will acknowledge it. Nowhere in the Bible that I've been able to find is an unbeliever told to ask for the Spirit. If, if, you, if I've missed it, please tell me. There is an unbeliever, Simon the sorcerer, who asked for the Spirit in Acts chapter 8, and he was rebuked for it. Peter said, by money perish with thee, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Therefore, it must be to believers that Jesus directed His words here in Luke eleven thirteen, And it stands to reason that if the Holy Spirit is the first and chief of God's gifts, then He should be the first and chief object of our prayers. But we think since we got the Holy Spirit at conversion, we don't pray for Him anymore. And we have not because we ask not. But I'm here to tell you this morning, if you only knew, you would ask. These disciples had come to Jesus and said in the same chapter, Luke chapter 11, and said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And it was in that context that Jesus gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's truly the model prayer for his disciples. And it's in that same context that the directive of verse 13 is, giving, is given. If you, know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? For 10 days after Christ's ascension, they did exactly that. They waited in the upper room for the promise of the Father. And I submit to you, though you may differ, I submit that they had already received the Spirit in His illumination on the afternoon of His, of His, of His resurrection. When Jesus said, as recorded in John 20, verse 22, He breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. They were changed from that moment on. They understood the Scriptures before that. They were blind as a bat. And so now with fuller knowledge, they banded together. They asked for that power. They still lacked the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a united prayer meeting in the upper room that took place for 10 days. And they got what they asked for when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Why are we afraid of that? Are we going to let the Pentecostals steal our thunder? I ask you, has the statute of limitations run out on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The last I checked, the age of the Spirit has not expired. Again, and again, and again, and again, in the history of the church, God has graciously visited His people for the outpouring of His Spirit that results in infusions of new life and a great ingathering of souls. I could spend an hour doing it. My time is gone. Thank you for the extra time I got. Thank you for taking the clock off the wall. I don't even have to worry about that. In July of 1741, 
a man that I hope is a household name to you. Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach and not in his hometown of Northampton, Massachusetts, but in nearby Enfield, Connecticut, a place that was as yet untouched by the first great awakening associated with George Whitfield. Sensing the need and knowing that Edwards was scheduled to preach, although some accounts say that he was really a stand-in preacher. I'm not sure which is the truth. But sensing the need and knowing that Edwards was scheduled to preach, members of the local congregation met the night before. Many of them spent all night in prayer for the outpouring of the Spirit. They were concerned less than, and I quote, while the divine showers were falling around them, Enfield would be passed by. Reminds us of Fanny Crosby's great hymn, While on others our calling do not pass me by. The congregational church in Enfield was packed. Standing room only. Edwards was six feet tall when he rose to preach in the corner pulpit on a platform. He towered over the assembly. The sermon title was, as we know, the greatest sermon preached in North America. We're talking about the greatest sermon ever preached, and that was the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. But the greatest sermon ever preached in North America was sinners in the hands of an angry God that he gave on that occasion. There was nothing so special about his about the way he talked. There was nothing that excited attention except his awful solemnity. As you've heard me say before, he was nearsighted, extremely nearsighted. He had the manuscript inches from his face. He talked in a low, monotone voice. He described a vivid picture of hell. Before he could even get done with the message, people were shrieking out, Mr. Edwards, have mercy, stop. What must I do to be saved? Alas, for our frolics and our dances. He hadn't said a word about dancing. Hundreds were smitten with conviction on the spot. Strong men were reaching for columns and chair rails, something to hold on to. Wait just a minute, something you may not have known was that Edwards had preached the same sermon a few months before in his home church in Northampton, Massachusetts, with little effect. But this time it was different. God was entreated. A multitude was swept into the kingdom of God right on the spot. Fast forward four years. A young man is standing in a clearing where trees have just been felled. He's battling tuberculosis. He would later die in Jonathan Edwards' home. He's preaching to a group of Indians. His name is David Brainerd. For three years up until that time, he'd been regularly fasting and praying with little outward success. He was so discouraged, he had made up his mind that if nothing happened within just a month or two, he was going to write back to the correspondents in Scotland who were supporting him like a mission agency and offer his resignation so that they would use their money to greater effect elsewhere. And it wasn't even while he was speaking on the clearing that this happened, but just a short time later as he went from hut to hut, from, from, from TP to TP to inculcate what he had preached in his message from Luke chapter 14 about the great gospel supper. All of a sudden, the, the power of the Spirit of God descended upon the, those Indians like a rushing mighty wind. Almost all persons of all ages, both in their 90s and little children, not more than six or seven years of age, were slain with conviction. And saw their need of Christ and were saved. A church of 120 within a few months was formed out of that little clearing. Brainerd afterward wrote in his journal, I must say that I never saw any day like it in all respects. It was a day in which I'm persuaded the Lord did much to destroy the kingdom of darkness among his people. 
This was indeed a surprising day of God's power, and it seemed as if God had bowed the heavens and come down. After agonizing in prayer for a season, Brainerd saw the new birth of many souls. Many of them didn't even know they had a soul until he started talking to them. I'm done. I ask you one question. Is the God of David Brainerd and Jonathan Edwards our God? Is the Holy Spirit still with us or has the statute of limitations run out? If He is our God, if the age hasn't ended and the Spirit is still with us, I beg you in Jesus' name, in 2023, will we give ourselves to prayer like our lives depended upon it? And will we take Jesus at His word? If you knew you would ask, will we dare to believe that God stands ready to do again what He's done many, many times in the last 2,000 years? Will you bow in prayer with me? Oh, Father, what greater incentive do we need to pray for personal quickening, quickening for corporate revival than what we've just read from Your Word? Oh, the weakness of our flesh, so averse to prayer, it should call us to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. Oh, God, the worldliness so rife in our church that grieves the Holy Spirit and causes Him to withdraw His manifest presence from us should cause us to cry out, avenge us of our adversary. The warfare in the heavenlies should awaken us to realize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The witness of the Holy Spirit, that divine attestation that we so desperately need, so wonderfully promised, but yet not completely exhausted, should galvanize us to pray for the greater works that Jesus promised that we would do when He went back to the Father, if we would believe into Him. Would you ignite in our hearts something this morning that will cause us to go home and bombard heaven with our persistent asking? Would you do it now? Begin that work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.